Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 155, recorded on March 2nd, 2022. The Cloud Pod shows green in the new AWS status page. Good evening, all. Hey, Justin. Good evening. Hey, Peter. Hi. Uh, well, we're missing Ryan this week. He uh, he wasn't feeling well, so he uh, took a took a path to the red dot on the SAS page instead of the green one. So he's not here with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, we have lots of news to cover, anyways, about him. So we will get right to it. Uh, first up is the Register, who uh, had an article about how cloud status pages are big fat liars. Uh, they point out that Down Detector reported issues at AWS. Yet when people complained, AWS they said all was okay. And so the register tries to reconcile these two realities of a small group of users unable to come to AWS and AWS saying all is okay. Uh, and they talked to many people, including the creator of Status Page, Status Page, and Stop Lying Cloud, uh, all to the point of what's going on there. And Perry, the creator of Status Page, Status Page, believes it's tied to contractual SLAs, which is why the Status Page lies. Uh, and a former, uh, and then the Stop Lying Cloud says, no, no, it's more complicated than that, uh, which is Corey Quinn, of course. He's, we've talked to him before. Uh, he was saying all things about, uh, you know, all the different areas that AWS struggles with scale and how do you scale a manually updated page, which I think is a good point. And then even former AWS engineer who wrote a really well-known Reddit post uh, for those in the AWS community, uh, Nick Hemmerk, uh, talked about his time on the Beanstalk team where in 2017 he posted that if you had to update the status page to a non-green status, a manager had to be involved and had to approve. Uh, and ultimately that led to... Uh, a lot of green on the board with not a lot of action and a lot of green with uh, exclamation points. So the manager didn't have to look bad uh, and it ultimately could be decided by the on-call engineer versus the manager. And then, of course, Amazon dismissed the entire notion of all of this uh, in the end of the article uh, about the enterprise SLAs are involved, as well as that there's any issues with their with their dashboard and had they even pointed out the register, or sorry, that the uh, down detector had to even retract one of their AWS's down issues. Uh, so a lot of finger pointing, a lot of gnashing of teeth in this article. But what do you guys think about the status page that lies? What does it mean to be down, right? When 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 you have pod-based services deployed in many availability zones in many regions, how how down does it have to be before they're going to call it down? I mean, they 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 refer to services being you know impaired, increased error rates, things like that, and those those things. All makes sense in the in the context of well, still ninety nine point nine 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 percent of calls are successful. And sure, if your application isn't architected to handle errors particularly gracefully, that may lead to issues. But we we design architectures for software to, to handle failures like this. So I, I think I think it's probably there's obviously a bit of spin from the cloud provider side because they don't want to admit that something's not working as well as it could be. But at the same time, I think users of the cloud could could do little more to handle temporary glitches. Yeah, but I think, and I think that there's, uh, I think the one interesting piece of that article that I got, I, mean, I, I think Amazon wants to do their best and all the hyperscalers want to do their best to communicate status. But um, I think Jonathan is on to something when it's like, well, you know, you have to have a definition for down. Um, but it, is, it would be odd to me if those status pages aren't driven by automated tests. If it's a manager's call, it makes it much more difficult to trust them um, when deciding how to do your own troubleshooting. So, you know, if, if we know that, okay, we know what the test is, we know what it means, and we know whether it's red or green, that would direct me if I'm having an outage to whether this is something I'm checking with Amazon and waiting for an Amazon service to be fixed or whether or not it's, uh, you know, specific to my deployment. So I would, I don't care what the definition is. I just want to know what the definition is and I want the test to be automated so that I can trust the green or red dot. Yeah, that's fair. So I, I mean, again, you, it is an interesting point of, you know, is it based on automated tests? And that's why I think you do get into elevated error rates. And at what point, you know, what threshold has to be crossed for an elevated error rate to become a yellow or a red on the dashboard? Um, you know, that does seem to be the subjective. <laughs> and, you know, I would want it to be more automated than it is, but it's not. But, you know, I think Corey actually rightfully pointed out, you know, USC's one, for example, is, you know, 30, 40, 50 facilities in Virginia that are all lumped together into six availability zones. And if you think of one data center that lost power, 
you know, the number of people who are actually impacted in that entire region by that one building uh, is probably only a small fraction of the overall capacity of that region. And so how do you, how do you declare that that's a down for everybody when it's only down for a small subset of users? And so that's, that's where things get a little bit tougher. That's why I think they came out with a personal health dashboard to try to help solve that problem. But the personal health dashboard is just as slow to be updated as any of the status pages are. So again, is it automated? I, it doesn't seem to be to me. No, you're right. And, and I think it gets more difficult because of the way the availability zone is abstracted and then sort of randomized between different customers so that not everyone goes for the same AZ all the time. And so it will be hard for them to say, well, you know, US East 1A has a problem because that's a different data center for somebody else. Yeah, I mean, understanding the thresholds would, would be nice, but it, it's, it's difficult because, I mean, if, if, if you have an instance up and running just fine, but you can't launch a new instance, is EC2 down? Is the control plane being down the same as the service itself being down? I mean, I would think that being the ability to launch a new launch a new instance would be fairly um, you know, instrumental to using the service. But there's, there's lots of very fine distinctions made between whether something's working or not. I, I think a little more transparency is needed. But I don't think they're trying to mislead anybody. No. I mean, I do know that at smaller SaaS companies, you know, the status page was a big contention for sales because... Uh, competitors would start tracking, you know, you know, their competitors' stats pages and start using those things and sales things. But, you know, I do think, um, you know, I do think it's a challenge with, uh, you know, any of these things if you're trying to be competitive. But in the cloud world, I don't think it's a problem. You know, everyone knows Azure, everyone knows GCP, everyone knows AWS. And Oracle probably tracks all their stats pages so they can throw them under the bus anytime they can. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, does anyone really care what Oracle says? Uh, and so that's it's, it's a bit of an interesting challenge that I, I I don't envy anybody who's trying to solve that challenge to that scale because it's a lot of data to deal with and automatic uh, reporting may also be the other side of the issue where um, you know things small little errors get reported all the time and like middle of the night if it doesn't impact me do I really need to know about it? I mean, maybe, maybe I don't, but it also sends a, a sense of perception to your customer that you're more unstable than you actually are if they're not being impacted. So it, it, there's always a fine line on stats pages of how you manage them and how you address this issue. And unfortunately, just non-technical audiences sometimes have to look at these things and they don't understand the nuance. Yeah. All right, let's move on to AWS. Uh, so after they tirelessly argued that the AWS stats page was awesome and had no problems whatsoever, and it was the best source of all truth about uh, the world of AWS. Uh, they launched a new version on Monday, <laughs> which is bad timing, AWS, bad timing. Uh, it is now been, is no longer known as the AWS stats page. It's now the AWS health dashboard, which is a terrible name because I think health, I think personal health, not cloud health. Uh, it combines the AWS stash page with, with the personal health dashboard into a single connected experience, uh, which also makes it also super confusing as you will see different results depending on if you're logged into the console or not. Uh, and if you hit the main page, you'll still get a sea of, a sea of dots, uh, but you could easily get RSS feeds for any of those dots. So if you specifically care about EC2, uh, it's now easy to find all of your RSS feeds for those. Uh, if you want to see service history, that's now actually easily found and searchable in their console, where before it was a bit hidden. Uh, so that's quite nice. And then with the login process, you can now jump into your account events or your organizational events if you're part of an organization to see across all of your accounts uh, what may have impacted that particular account or service, uh, which is pretty nice. Uh, it is much more responsive as well. Uh, and if you have multiple services impacted, apparently they will roll up to a single root cause. So you don't have to look at you know 20 different uh, boxes that are all red to get a true accurate uh, thing. So now, I mean, personally for myself, I'd like to see uh, US Tire Fire 1 have a major outage to see how this works because you can't really test it till the outage happens, but uh, nothing's happened since Monday. Uh, and since my day job's in GCP, uh, you know, Tire Fire 1, burn, baby burn, man. Let's go. Let's see that, <laughs> let's see that thing go red. <laughs> it makes sense to put it all in one place. I like that it's, it's all being collected together in one place. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was my complaint about the personal health dashboard originally. Was, which one do I go to and, and when do I make that decision? And now... The default is the same page, just I had to log in or not log in. And if I see something's impacting me on the main page, then I can log in and see if I'm actually being impacted. So I think it's a much better experience. Um, so, you know, this, this is a win, I think. Again, it depends on how it works in an actual outage. Uh, but so far, the promise of it and the way it works, I, I like. I mean, I especially like the organization uh, view as well, because if you've got 200 accounts, then it, it's important to know what's happening everywhere because of the way services in different accounts may be uh, communicating. So. That was previously almost impossible to aggregate the data for, I think. 
Yeah, it was not easy. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a, is a health API you can call, and you could create your own custom thing or use a third party tool like Datadog to do it. Uh, but yeah, it was it was not something you could just get out of the box easily. No. Well, if you uh, are a big fan of checksums and Amazon S3, and particularly MD5 checksums, uh, Amazon's got some new options for you. Uh, of course, Amazon S3 is designed to give you 11 nines of durability uh, of your object plus your med data, and it stores exactly what you put into it and returns exactly what you put into it. So if you put in bad data, it'll give you bad data back. Uh, and all this uh, can be confirmed and validated through the you know, through a checksum uh, as a digital fingerprint. Uh, as you do this, of course, you do a put object. You then pass the checksum as part of it. Uh, and then when the upload's finished, it check- validates the checksum and says all is good and then writes the data to your object. Uh, this is a problem, though, in multi-gigabyte or multi-terabyte files as it can be pretty computationally expensive to calculate the MD5 and lead to bottlenecks. Uh, and AWS even said in their article that some customers have built entire fleets for nothing but this purpose, which oh kind of blows my mind. <laughs> and so to help with this, AWS is now supporting four new checksum algorithms. Uh, the new algorithms are the SHA-1, SHA-256, the CRC-32, and the CRC-32C. Uh, so when you upload the objects to S3, it'll automatically use those to, uh, when you select one of those, it'll use those to then check, calculate the checksum. Uh, this is all built into the AWS SDK. Uh, so if you're using the SDK for all of your S3 things, which I don't know why you wouldn't be at this point, uh, it computes and specifies the checksum as part of the upload and includes it as an HTTP trailer at the conclusion of the upload or you can provide the pre-computer checksum from your, your fleet, apparently. Uh, the AWS UK also now takes advantage of the client-side parallelism and computes checksums on each part of a multi-part upload. And the checksums for all parts are themselves checksummed, and this checksum of checksums is transmitted to S3 at the end of the upload. Uh, the checksum and the algorithm are now stored as part of the object's metadata, and if you're using server-side encryption with KMS keys, it's also encrypted at rest and will stick with the object through its lifetime, even if it changes storage class or is superseded by a newer version. And they're also all transferred via the S3 replication. And you can get the checksum at any time with the get objects attribute function. So that's a pretty nice upgrade, in my opinion. Has Amazon S3 lost a file yet? I mean, not that we've ever heard about publicly. <laughs> they used to brag about never having lost a file, despite you shouldn't expect that. You should expect 11 nines. And at some point, it's got to happen, right? I mean, I assume that something's happened in the past, but. They think give you a really big gag order and some money, and they say, "Go away! <laughs> don't ever, don't ever mention it." Well, I, I like the extra checksum. So, so if I understand this correctly, MD five used to be calculated on the on the S three side, right after upload. Well, no, you you would do it. You would pre do it uh, before you uploaded, and then you provide the MD five as part of upload metadata. And so then it would compare. You know, then it would process the file and tell you whether the MD five matched. Uh, but it was not on the server side, as far as I'm aware. Hmm. Okay, so now the, the clients are paying for the compute to calculate the checksums and then have to verify that themselves on download. S3 is no longer doing that work, I assume. They weren't doing it before. Now they are doing it for you if you're using this new method. Right. Hmm. You seem skeptical, Jonathan. Well, if it's the client SDK that's doing it, then that's my, that's my compute that's spending cycles on calculating the checksums. Well, but it's doing it as part of the, pro- uh, part of the sending process versus... You know, a separate operation to do, generate MD5, uh, it's now doing it you know, as part of the upload process. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, in theory, I can see your, I can see your argument. <laughs> it's like, hey, this, this is computationally expensive. Let's push it back onto the client. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. in theory, you're already paying for it with this massive fleet you have to manage, so maybe you're actually getting a savings out of it. Yeah, you are. I, I mean, it's, it's important, especially with things like healthcare. For, I mean, for people who really need this, it's, it's super valuable. You know, for people who are putting up their Twitter for pets uh, items, they don't really care. <laughs> well, I imagine they, they have so many objects in S3 now that MD5 just doesn't cut it as far as uniqueness goes. Well, that's probably too, true as well. Because, I mean, not only do not only are you now processing, but also Amazon's processing it as well. So now you're paying for it twice uh, in many ways, or it's part of the cost of a you know, gigabyte of storage, uh, which can be expensive at the end of the day. All right, uh, moving on to EC2 auto-scaling warm pools, uh, which we talked about previously and made terrible fun of the name of, uh, now supports both hibernating instances and returning instances to warm pools on scale in or 
as I like to call them, scaled-down operations. Uh, the two features where hibernating your warm pool allows you to uh, take an application with a significant memory uh, requirement uh, and basically put it into a hibernated state so when you need it, uh, it'll now just come out of hibernation with all the memory intact and you can start you can start running even faster than before. Uh, this allows you to actually pre-initialize the entire EC2 instance state, not just the disk state, uh, and it can make your operations much, much faster. Uh, and then for scaling for warm pools, apparently, and I did not know this about warm pools previously because I have not used them, uh, when you would take a server from the warm pool and put it into the active pool and then you no longer needed it, it would terminate that instance. <laughs> and then you had to spin up basically a new one to, re- to repopulate the warm pool. Well, that's pointless. <laughs> right? Now they have the ability to return a server back to the warm pool uh, and then hibernate it or whatever you want to do so you don't have to go through that re- uh, relaunch and initialize phase once again. That's neat. If I had more Windows workloads, I may care more about this, I suppose, because the pain of auto-scaling oh. Windows instances in and joining them to the domain and rebooting five times and so stiff. doing all that stuff. I mean, it takes it's it's a good 10 or 15-minute process to, to yeah. auto-scale Windows servers. Then you've got to remove them again from AD at the end or have some process that cleans those things up. So this is a great solution for anybody who, uh, who has to run Windows and wants to scale up and down to save money. Yeah, we had to basically help recreate auto-scaling for our first... Uh, big scaling Windows customer because it was impossible. Scaling took so long, it was pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine it would help out with things like workspaces as well, where you want you want instant on, but you don't want to have the thing sitting there the whole time, just waiting for a client to connect. Yeah. Well, if you are in the security space and you have a robust AWS customer incident process, uh, and things go wrong in your Amazon environment, you have a whole incident response team and incident management, as you should as a good security practitioner. Uh, you might have said to yourself, well, I really like to test these processes. And AWS Labs is here with a cool tool that I thought we should talk about called AWS Cloud Saga, which allows you to simulate security events in an AWS environment using generated alerts based on security events seen by the real AWS customer incident response team or the CERT. Uh, being able to test your environment against documented security events is a key part of many compliance frameworks. And using the Cloud Saga, a simple scenario that mimics actual security events can be run against the customer's environment, testing the customer's response plans and defenses when these events occur and improve the overall defense of their AWS environment from the results. And this is all open source, available to you on GitHub. And uh, I assume we'll get more features as it continues to evolve. But great first step. I like it a lot. Yeah, and I mean, compared with the price of... uh having a, a red team come and do the same thing for you. I imagine it's relatively cheap. Yeah. Question is, how many features are available? Doubles in the details, right? I think there's five right now. There's the IMDS exposure, Bitcoin mining. Um, Network changes. Hang on, let me look. I'll look the page up. Tap, 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 Google. Um, Network changes, IAM credentials, um, trying to grab IAM credentials from within an account and publicly accessible resource scenario. Yeah. So I guess uh, all the things that people have been complaining about uh, or which have been uh, exploited in over the past couple of years, really, publicly. Yeah. They're all very common common use cases. And again, things that you want to test, and I'm sure they'll add more as you go along through the process. Yep. Well, if you've uh, if you gotten really excited about IPv6 to the point that you've deployed IPv6 only workloads, particularly for Kubernetes, uh, which is a, a pretty common use case due to the fact that your containers might need a lot of IP addresses, which are hard to deploy version by IPv4, um, you may have ran into some problems when you do need to connect to an IPv4 resource, uh, which requires some type of proxying or some type of other issue. And so AWS has released a couple of new features for you this week to help you address the IPv6 to IPv4. Uh, issues. And these are for services that are only running IPv4 and only running IPv6. Uh, and so basically, the first one is NAT64 support. And 64 in this case is 6 to 4. <laughs> and, and a DNS uh, 6 to 4 resolver enhancement. Uh, really clever there. Well done. I can't wait for NAT46 and DNS46 to go the yeah. other way. But, you know, whatever. It's coming, I'm sure. Basically, what will happen now is that IPv6 hosts will call to resolve the service name, uh, you know, via DNS 64, uh, and basically will be provided a uh, prepended IP address uh, starting with 64 colon FF 9B colon colon slash 96 subnet, uh, which they say is well known, uh, but I don't know who's well known by <laughs> because it wasn't me uh, to the IPv4 address, and then basically they'll get passed to the NAT gateway if you route all of your 64 uh, colon FF 9B 
slash 96 routes to the NAT gateway. NAT gateway will recognize the address prefix, extract the IPv4 address from it, and then initiate an IPv4 connection to the destination, and then handle that in reverse. Uh, this is all available to you at no additional cost other than the sky-high NAT gateway fees, but uh, this is actually a pretty valuable service if you want to do IPv6, so this might actually make those fees not so painful because you're getting a lot of value out of this. <laughs> you guys are not excited about IPv6, huh? How many IPv6 workloads am I running? I support both IPv4 and IPv6, so I don't have this problem, but I can see how this would be a problem for some people um, in particular. So the, uh, the cloud pod runs on IPv6 and on IPv4, actually, because mobile apps, uh, mobile use cases, uh, you, you don't get scored as well by the Google uh, usability score index if you're not using IPv6. Little weird wrinkle of the internet these days. Eventually, we'll get there. Twenty more years. Eventually, and then an announcement that only came—you know—maybe six months too late for Jonathan. <laughs> Amazon has announced the new customer carbon footprint tool. Uh, you can now see the carbon footprint of your AWS environment with the new customer carbon footprint tool. This tool will help you meet your own sustainability goals and is available to all AWS customers at no cost. Uh, if you're curious, you can go find it in your billing console and click the cost and usage reports and scroll down to the bottom of the page. Uh, I'd be happy to report that the cloud pod is carbon neutral per the report uh, for the account that runs the cloud pod. Uh, you know, I did have some carbon impact last year, I see, but it did drop down to zero, uh, which I can only attest to the fact that AWS has invested a ton of money in solar and renewable energies that I'm not getting the benefit of, uh, which if I had a tax break, uh, U.S. government, I'd be super happy about. But uh, you know, maybe someday you'll get that for your carbon emission needs that you can recognize. Uh, if you drill into the carbon emissions in summary, it does give you a geographic view and a per-service view as well. In all cases, the emissions are in metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, or abbreviated as MTCO2E. Uh, and to note, this only covers your Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions. Uh, which covers direct facility, vehicle costs, indirect costs, electricity, building assets, travel, transportation, fuel, and capital goods, uh, all part of your carbon footprint. It does not cover the scope three, which is really not applicable to this. It's more about inventory control. Uh, so overall, this is pretty pretty nice. Yeah, I like it. I kind of wish they'd, they'd publish um, data per service along along in the, with the pricing pages, honestly. So we, when we're picking a, picking a service to use or picking an instance type to use, we can make more informed decisions. It's it's great having this, this sort of retrospective view on what your account's doing, but it will be nice to be able to, to pick out and say, look, you know, a C5-9X large is actually X many times less or more efficient than uh, a, a different instance class. Like adding the calories to yeah. the menu. Yeah. I mean, I like there, are, there are some businesses where they will want to be carbon neutral or or, or or buy credits to offset things like that. So it's important for them to know ahead of time, not not necessarily just re- retrospectively. It's great though. Yeah. Yeah. I think all three cloud providers now offer you this, which is great. So if this is something you care about, I think even Oracle offers you this, um, you know, definitely jump on this and, and start tracking your carbon story. Cause I think it's a good story to have. Yeah. They, they were going to tell us how much water we used as well, but there, there weren't enough uh, zeros to fit on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's still a bit of a point of contention with those data centers. The uh, the cooling costs in terms right. of uh, yeah. fresh water is quite significant. Yeah, that's kind of an issue potentially in the future. Yeah, but I mean, water's kind of renewable, kind of a renewable resource. It's really not as renewable as you think it is. <laughs> Where does it go? It gets polluted and then is no longer valuable. <laughs> so it has yeah. to be cleaned and purified, and fresh water will become a big issue sometime in the future. GCP uh, had a very slow week, unfortunately, this week. So we are going to talk about reasons why you should buy your software from the Google Cloud Marketplace, which Google has proudly given us. Uh, mostly because they wanted to brag about the fact that their marketplace saw a 500% year-over-year growth in 2021, which I can attest to is probably tied to the fact that their commission is the lowest of all three cloud providers. And if you're going to buy it through a cloud contract anyways, why not do it through the one that benefits the vendor the most, which would be Google in this case. So yeah, there you go. Uh, the benefits of the Google Cloud Marketplace per Google, number one, find what you're looking for faster. With enhanced filters, quick discovery top, uh, quickly discover top solutions ready to run in your Google Cloud instance. And the filters are now more intuitive, allowing you to browse solutions by industry type, category, use case, and more, as well as a free trial option to allow you to try before you buy. Plus a selection of popular, new, and featured products across all categories to help you spend your money faster and more efficiently than ever before. Uh, which, you know, Google's good at search. Huh, it's weird. Wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it now. You know, people like you get things from marketplace like this. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I do think the uh, the search capabilities of the AWS Marketplace uh, do leave a lot to be desired. But when I'm buying something from a vendor, they just send me the link to the right page, and I just go do that way. So I don't know that it yeah. matters that much to me. But uh, you know, to find new stuff that might be beneficial, and in the Google world where they don't have a lot of managed services, uh, being able to buy stuff from your marketplace is super important because uh, you'll be buying a lot of partnerships uh, that you then get to manage and deal with salespeople on. Uh, as you do a lot with Google, you'll find out. Uh, if you are a seller, you can buy, or a seller and a buyer, you can buy and sell the way you want to, which allows you to initiate and accept customized offers and partner investments and the producer portal are all there to help you identify your spend and revenues as well as how to produce more revenue, hopefully. Uh, which basically means, uh, you know, you don't have to pay those list prices. Talk to the vendor. They'll give you a better price, hopefully, and give you a custom offer that meets your needs without having to pay through the nose for the marketplace, which I imagine that most transactions on most cloud providers are not marketplace default pricing. It's all special pricing, uh, which just makes this super critical for customized offers. It is incredible how difficult sometimes it is to find something in the marketplace when you know exactly what you're looking for. Yep. I know the vendor name. I know the product. I still can't find it. <laughs> yeah. Can't find it. Uh, you can manage your purchases conveniently, so you can see, view all your orders. You can see all your products you ordered uh, via those orders, as well as you get simplified setup for SaaS applications with the service account provisioning UI, uh, which allows you to subscribe right there to all SaaS opportunities if they're integrated into the Google Marketplace, uh, which that's nice, I guess. The the UI for SaaS stuff is great because I've I have bought some SaaS apps through AWS's Marketplace, uh, and that's not a great user experience because you get typically dumped to some page of like, you'll be contacted by email at some point in the undetermined future, which is always a, t- a terrible way to get left after you just spent millions of dollars. <laughs> which is super fun because, you know, typically also you're, you know, when I've gone and done it, you know, my purchase authority of a company is not millions of dollars typically, but, you know, we've gone through the purchase order process. So, and, you know, got the contract signed and all the stuff of the old fashioned way. Then someone has to go in and click the button and you're like, Ooh, I'm going to spend $2 million by clicking this button. And technically you don't have the authorization to do so, <laughs> which is why, which is where tools like Koopa and others come into play. But uh, it's super interesting and a weird feeling when you do it for the first time. So if you don't have a purchase order and approval, don't do it. So just be clear if you're out there listening to this. All right. That's it for Google. What do you guys think? You know, when they talk about um, service catalog and, and ha- having a, an allowable list of marketplace offerings that people can choose from, I, I kind of think, like, who's really the the target for things like that? Because as, as you mentioned, purchase orders very important for large purchases. Enterprises are likely to, to have enterprise licensing agreements that cover deployments in many projects or many accounts so i, I kind of like wonder it, it, it's it sounds nice on paper but how many how many people will actually just give free reign to to any project to purchase something in the marketplace without some kind of approval process or anything else they currently have it though for every single other service in that account right you don't have to get a po to spin up a new instance mm. yeah you can spend a lot of money without without a, without a lot of work <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> Uh, you know, the one thing about uh, the marketplace for GCP as well as for AWS, I, I think Azure has this too, but so you can actually, go, if you're a you know, centralized group who's managing your cloud and you're managing the spend globally, right? So let's say Red Hat licenses. So you could, you could basically buy your allocation of Red Hat licenses and then you can publish a private marketplace to your organization, to all your projects that basically just consumes licenses out of your pre-purchase, but it allows you to kind of do it that way. And so a lot of companies, I think, have moved to that model where... You know, there's a centralized account where they do the massive purchasing and then everything else is pushed to a private marketplace where they're just they're publishing things via service catalog uh, to end users that they can buy that are pre-approved and authorized. The cloud broker model. Yep. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pub possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. 
All right, Azure is uh, continuing the verticalization of the Azure cloud this week with the new Azure for Operators capabilities, allowing operators to unlock the power of 5G by bringing cloud and edge closer together to modernize their networks so that they can streamline and optimize their business operations and deliver new services faster with greater reach and lower costs. Uh, the new Azure for Operators offers four core services. The first is Azure Operator Distributed Services for carrier-grade hybrid cloud platform for 5G mobile and voice networks. The Azure Operator 5G Core for cloud-native 5G uh, solutions uh, core for operator edge deployments and Azure operator distributed services. And then Azure private 5G core for 5G packets at core as a service for Azure private mech solutions and an Azure public mech for Azure compute services with operators 5G connectivity for low latency applications, which means nothing to me, all any of those, but people who know this <laughs> language understood everything I just said. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, networks are below... I guess over my head or under my feet. I'm not sure which one. But so, so the target users of this are actually, you know, the telcos, AT and T, and Verizon, and, and the likes, more so than yeah. uh, than end users, right? Hmm. Seems it. Yeah, it's a Azure for operators. Yep, gotta love it. <laughs> I like, you know, if I was a telco operator who wanted to sell cloud services, this would be a great solution. I did, they are partnering pretty heavily with AT&T still. I haven't seen them expand that beyond AT&T. But uh, I guess if you want to use AT&T for a Mac solution, uh, this is where you go configure it, which is kind of nice. It's kind of funny they turn it into a, a press release and, a, and an offering as such. You would think that at, at the scale that a telco would be deploying this type of infrastructure, that it, it wouldn't be a, hey, let's just browse the, the Azure website. Oh, look, this is a service we can we can deploy right here. It would be kind of a... You know, a years-long project to to figure out you know, bills and materials and all kinds of stuff. It's it's sort of oddly oddly placed, and we see some of these announcements which are oddly placed. They make they make for nice press releases, but you think who's the customer for this? <laughs> how many of your customers are going to actually pick up on this and and uh, and make a purchase? Yeah, but you get you lend one of these guys. It's worth building all of this content <laughs> yeah. just for the just for the pursuit, the sales pursuit, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think it's one of those. You build this service, you sell three or four of them, you make you know a hundred million dollars in revenue on those three or four customers, and you call it a well money well spent. <laughs> so it's uh is definitely interesting. But, you know the whole idea of taking a Mac, which I think which is not the where you basically take you know AT and T and you're reselling AT and T service with your own brand name or Verizon or like that. So you know if you think about what it must take to set up you know those type of companies like Cricket Wireless, I think is one of them right now. Um, there's a bunch of couple others that are out there that I know of. Um, for them to go set that business up. You know, they're not actually putting wires in the ground because they're leasing that from other players. So if they still need infrastructure in the back end, so if you can provide them this mech capability through Azure mm-hmm. and you're partnered with AT&T and you want to sell, resell AT&T services, you now have a whole infrastructure you can now tie to that to launch your business, I guess. So that, that's a potentially a very fast process to kick off a competitor to telcos. And then when you get big enough, you can build your own wiring and your own towers and your own network. Uh, which none of them ever do. They always get bought by somebody else, typically. But you know, that's the idea, I think, in kind of the back end of this. And some of those companies make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Microsoft is expanding Defender Security to the Google Cloud, uh, where it joins AWS and Azure support. Uh, the Defender, of course, uh, for clouds provides capabilities for detecting misconfigurations in cloud infrastructure, or as we like to call it, cloud security posture management. Uh, this offering also includes cloud workload protection, which helps secure workloads across both containers and servers. And Microsoft continues to battle with AWS and GCP for infrastructure to service customers. They do see security as a critical to support the top three clouds as to what their customers want and need to allow them to solve their problems. In addition to covering CSPM and CWP offering, they are also unveiling the CloudNox permissions management solution based on their acquisition of CloudNox last year. This new offering is in public preview uh, and provides you complete visibility into all identities, users, and workload access controls in the cloud. Uh, overall, Microsoft reported that the security business for them grew 45%, surpassing $15 billion during the previous 12 months uh, compared to the year before, uh, which all makes sense to me now that Charlie Bell went there to go lead the security operation because he's now driving a $15 billion business inside yeah. of Azure. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now all of a sudden it makes sense. Like, oh, you couldn't get the CEO job at AWS, but you can go run a $15 billion business that's got 45% growth. You can do a lot of good across multiple clouds <laughs> in that particular use case. So that's pretty nice, uh, nice play. That's a lot of money for for a thing for a business unit. <laughs> Fifteen billion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. 
but it is interesting though the competitor side of it. You know, like yes, we're competing with all these companies, but if we give you security solutions that work across everybody, then we're you know we're on both sides of this angle where we're you know we're giving you you know pure built solutions we can totally sell you into over time, but we also give you temporary solutions to help you solve your security problem. It's it's a good strategy. Uh, it works well, I think, for Microsoft. Yeah, I, I mean, all of them are doing it to some degree, right? Most of them are doing it with the control plane for Kubernetes and other services. So. Well, I mean, GCP, yeah, they have Anthos, they've got, and they have workspaces to give you kind of that office side. Uh, AWS has kind of gone into multi-cloud now, but it, the one thing AWS doesn't really have is a good competitor to Office. That's one area they're really lacking because none of their workmail products. What do you mean? Work you, docs? You don't like work docs? Work docs is not great. Nope. Not great. <laughs> uh, yeah, they don't really have a great competitor to either of those two solutions, which is kind of interesting. And then they try to compete with Slack, you know, with Chime. But that's not going so well for them. So yeah, they get they're so strong in other areas. I, I think it's a mistake to try to compete everywhere with the two other companies that are roughly your size or whatever. It's like do the thing you're really good at and just keep doing it better. So this week, Azure Monitor and Logs.io have partnered to build the Logs.io for Microsoft Azure, which makes it easy to ship your log data to Logs.io in minutes without deploying any new code. From within Azure, you can deploy Logs.io resources and choose which logs they want to send to Logs.io for storage and analysis, including your activity logs, data from multiple Azure resources, and log files from virtual machines. Uh, prior to this, you had to configure and set up Event Hub in your subscription and then use Azure Functions to send data from Azure to Logs.io. And I question the why didn't Microsoft just buy logs.io? It would have solved a lot of their problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell you why. <laughs> because they didn't want anything to do with Elasticsearch. <laughs> that is somebody oh, yes. else's problem. <laughs> yes, we'll give you the files. <laughs> you can have them. Have the customers, have the data. Just do not bother us with Elasticsearch. <laughs> yeah. it, was in, it was interesting. I learned today about uh, the potential acquisition from Cisco of Splunk for $20 billion. And I was just, I was like, wow, you combine AppDynamics and Thousand Eyes, which they also bought recently, and Splunk. And like, now what does Elastic do? Because <laughs> basically Cisco is now the biggest guy on the block. And it's sort of, you know, it's a better play because they're actually going to buy the bigger solution than what Palo Alto did, which was they bought a bunch of smaller players trying to build them up to be the big player. Cisco's just like, no, no, we'll just buy that one for $20 billion and we'll get all of this. <laughs> it's just, all the space is about to get really interesting if that rumor turns out to be true. I think it's smart. I mean, you look at the direction. I'm just shocked that network gear has not been commoditized yet, you know? And so... I mean, it has, but the... But, you know, there are, there are a lot of commodity white box network solutions that you can then write your own code for. But A, you know, most companies don't have the need for that kind of scale. So really, it's the Facebooks, it's the, the Yahoos, the Googles, the Amazons of the world who need it. Uh, and so they're buying commodity and they're just tra- programming it themselves, their own control planes. And then, you know, everyone else has just like been trained and certified in Cisco through the CCNA program for so many years and CCIE and all those programs. They just buy Cisco. So why would they do anything else? Because that's what they know and love. Well, you know, why don't people pay for Unix anymore? Because it's free. Right. That's my point. <laughs> Why hasn't the same happened on network gear? <laughs> but but the reality of the network gear is basically you have to buy the hardware. There's hardware there. You know, Linux it's software. There's no cost to it. Well, there but there's no there's no if you look at hard if you look at network gear, it's a piece of hardware running an OS. And you look at a Linux box, it's a piece of hardware running an OS. Yeah, and it's not Cisco that sure. makes their own silicon. It's Qualcomm or, or somebody else yeah. that makes all the silicon that goes into all the switches. <laughs> However, yeah, but, but I think it's coming either way, right? And Cisco sees the writing on the wall. And they should there use are their- companies out there that are doing it, but it's, I still think it's a question of, you know, am I getting enough value to do that? You know, because again, the reason why Cisco, or sorry, the reason why a Facebook, for example, would build you know build their own load balancer versus buying an F5 because they have a very specific use case with a very specific target scaling quota they need to hit, and they can throw thirty developers at this problem globally, and now they build their own load balancers on on open source and on hardware. Um, you know, most companies don't have that kind of scale requirement, and they need more. You know, they need to be able to integrate with more things, and so the IT side of the business will never really do that. So really, the market that would fit in for custom stuff is SaaS companies or providers who are sitting in the middle, you know, who aren't IT shops, but they aren't 
clouds. <laughs> and I think that market is is very small for the space. And again, how much value are they getting out of that? It's got to be easy. And I don't, why those companies have come out and built their own custom, you know, silicone and their own custom switch gear, you know, it's still a lot of work and it's still not fully featured. So why would you go down that path when you can buy for, you know, five or $10,000 more for the switch from Cisco? Why not just do that? I, I get it. I just, it hasn't taken the world by storm. I mean, Ubiquiti is the closest thing you got on Wi-Fi where it's more open. And, you know, I don't know a lot of enterprises running Ubiquiti. <laughs> especially after the alleged hack that turned out to be an insider threat. Yeah, I guess there's a, 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 a sliding scale, isn't there, from you can go to Best Buy and buy a, an A-port Netgear switch, and that'll suffice. Mm-hmm. And if it breaks, you know, it's not the end of your business, and you can get one the next day or, or something else or order it on Amazon. And then you've got people who start to need more sensible size switches, you know, HP 24, 48-port switches for small offices and things like that, and that can be just off the shelf and they don't care about performance or complicated features or, or necessarily you know, complex management layers and things. And I guess at some point you get you get to a point where you need specialized features for MPLS or fiber to remote offices, and, and those are things which you're never going to see in off-the-shelf um, sort of hardware in, in, a, in a retail store. And then, yeah, I guess, I guess at the very far end is we need to optimize this because we have so much traffic going through that if we can shave off two bytes off every packet, that's, that's an enormous saving for us in time and, uh, and network bandwidth. Yeah, and I, I think the, the market in those slices, for a, for a white box network company to come in and be ultimately successful, I think that market is just not big enough anymore. I mean, if we still build data centers in a big, heavy way, if we were, st- you know, cloud wasn't a thing, I could see it potentially being a big deal now, but I think the cloud has eaten most of that market from them. Yeah, and I think, I still yeah. think there's a lot of trust issues. I mean, I, I, I buy TP-Link stuff. It's been absolutely rock solid and reliable for, for years, but there are, there are still people who don't trust following, you know, the, the super micro uh, scandal. People don't trust yeah. um, a, a lot of the, sort of the, the, the more discounted retailers for, for that type of hardware. They want to go with the name they trust, even though it's probably made in the same factory. But you know, yeah, and then they then they download and install a distribution of an open source yep. operating system onto their servers that they have not reviewed the code at all. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, let's not get into semantics. Yes, you're right, but I mean that's also much more complicated too. But uh, you know, I, I, again, I, but I think there's the evangel Linux is that you have a very large community who is checking these things and, and does care. And so I don't have to be an expert in kernel management because there's a whole group of people who do that. You know, I don't know if there's enough of people in the network space doing it at a level that you can have that confidence yet. But maybe there is. And I, this might be just a black area I, I don't have any view of in the market because it's not an area I've had to dabble too much. Because when I was starting to get down this path with a couple startups where we're doing you know, large scale, uh, you know, the cloud came along and we're like, let's do that instead. <laughs> so we just went that direction instead of doing our own custom gear um, and taking advantage of that stuff. But you know, maybe there is a market there I just don't understand because I never had to deal with it. I just think that if I were Cisco, I would be spending cash flow from operations on products that are not networking gear. I agree. I think, I mean, again, cloud is eliminating their customer base to sell that high-end network gear, which made most of their margin on. So they have to yep. pivot to SaaS. Yep. That's why they bought WebEx, allegedly, you know, and then screwed that up. They bought a camera company. They really screwed that one up. Uh, and now they're buying, App, you know, they bought AppDynamics. They bought Thousand Eyes. They bought Splunk. That's a that's a pretty healthy SaaS portfolio they're trying to build out. Yep. It could be interesting. We'll see what happens. Well, that was a good sidetrack into Cisco's business model. <laughs> Sorry. I think I let us down right. that rat hole. <laughs> well, let's go back to Azure and uh, NoSQL because that's another rat hole we could spend a lot of time in. Uh, Azure is now providing a database protection for Microsoft Defender for Azure Cosmos DB in preview. Uh, Cosmos is Azure's fully managed NoSQL database for modern, fast, and flexible app development, offering single-digit millisecond response times, automatic and instant scalability, and multiple SDKs and APIs to support a variety of non-relational data models. The new cloud workload protection capabilities are designed as an Azure native layer of security, um, tech attempts uh, to exploit the database in your Azure Cosmos DB <laughs> accounts based on the most common attack techniques and known bad actors enabling security teams to detect and respond to these threats more effectively using Microsoft Defender for cloud tool sets. Bet they wish they had this a year ago. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Low blow. Yep. Kicking them when they're down. Blow the belt, Jonathan. And this, this is the answer to, and what are you going to do to stop it happening again? Yes, this is it. Yeah. 
Uh, so uh, moving to Oracle for the rest of the last two stories for the week. Uh, if you didn't like Azure Cosmos DB because you didn't think it was secure and you didn't like MongoDB, I don't know if you knew this or not, but apparently Oracle has a NoSQL solution as well, which makes no sense to me because NoSQL seems like completely opposite of everything Oracle believes in about SQL Server uh, or about Oracle database in general. Uh, but, you know, in addition to the, have this thing I, they didn't have, they've now given you a serverless version of it because they're announcing the on-demand capacity pricing model for Oracle NoSQL database cloud service uh, in addition to the existing provision capacity model. The NoSQL database cloud service is a serverless, fully managed data store that delivers predictable, single-digit millisecond response times to data replication for high availability, which feels like a cut and paste from the Azure one, but wasn't. And developers can focus on building applications using the document, fixed schema, and key value models without managing the underlying infrastructure operations and maintenance, all from Oracle, with now on-demand capacity for you. I mean, I, I call a cloud provider that doesn't have on, an on-demand offering, uh, a colo. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, if, if I can't spin it up and down and, and get charged hourly, I, I, you know, that's, that loses the value of cloud for me. I just call it Rackspace. Yeah. We don't mention Rackspace anymore. They're in, they're in tough times these days. Rackspace is yeah. having a rough, rough go. It's all right. And then uh, Oracle. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder, I wonder if their NoSQL database actually supports SQL. <laughs> <laughs> Probably does. I mean, it's, true, it's a true valuable NoSQL database. It's got to support SQL at the end of the day. Uh, well, Oracle Cloud Guard uh, has been helping you secure your Oracle workload on OCI for a couple years now, since 2022, or sorry, 2020. Uh, but to enhance this further, they've introduced a Cloud Guard threat detector to help identify malicious activities and rescue security operators from drowning in a sea of alerts. The threat detector leverages Oracle threat intelligence and data science capabilities to surface sightings of nefarious behaviors that really deserve your attention and avoid mm. investigating every anomaly. Of course, the one you didn't investigate is one that actually was the hack, but you know the machine learning didn't help you out there. So now, you know, can you sue Oracle for this? That's what I was. That's my question about this. Machine learning, data science capabilities. They they went yes. they went in a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. No AI, no ML, science, data, data science. science. Yeah, this isn't an art, it's a science. (laughs) It's a science, yes. Your science told me it wasn't important, but it was. (laughs) So, Uh, All right, well, that is it for the week on another fantastic week of news. Peter, you want to do the lightning round? Well, AWS Q&A bot adds support for Genesis Cloud Contact Center, client filters, and sensitive information log redaction. I really put this here because all I've heard, all I've read this week when I was doing show notes was QAnon bot. <laughs> the Amazon QAnon bot is subverting all the Pizzagate rumors <laughs> and all the false election stuff using the Genesis Cloud Connector Contact Center filters and sensitive information for the Trump organization. That's all I saw every time I saw this article. All right, there goes my QAnon joke. Next, <laughs> ah, AWS App Runner adds a Java platform. Which is not a very great head, uh, you know, headline for supporting the Java Coretto platform, but you know, some really ran out of words this week at, at uh, AWS Marketing. I thought it was a place we got coffee from. Never mind. <laughs> at the train station, um, AWS Firewall Manager now supports AWS Network Firewall centralized deployment model. I look forward to the new centralized ultra deployment model so you can centralize your centralization of your network firewalls across all of your businesses because redundancy, redundancy is all about the, all the rage these days. It's a great place to undo uh, organization-wide firewall rules in one, you know, one go. So much for distributed yep. uh, compute <laughs> and uh, security. <laughs> Up next, federation for centralized deployment model. All right, students, start your engines. AWS Deep Racer Student Virtual League is now underway. Oh, hey Tommy, how, how did you cra- how did you fail your quarter? Well, I was too busy, you know, virtually racing my Deep Racer car around a virtual track with my student virtual league championships. Yes, that's what I want my students doing. Perfect. What do they have virtual carbon credits too? Ooh, maybe. Uh, there's also a good time to note that the uh, Deep Racer League for adults, non-students, is also starting up again uh, and is now in full effect once again as well. But I couldn't, I couldn't put that in the show notes. I didn't want to talk about it beyond what I just said. Yeah, I feel like that's something I would be good at, but I have no, I've had no motivation to try. AWS Trusted Advisor introduces priority for AWS Enterprise Support customers in preview. 
which is a really dumb thing to hide behind a paywall. It's a sort. It's a special sort of your trusted advisor recommendations by priority. No, no, sorry. Paywalled. Enterprise customers only. Sorry. <laughs> no sense. Just trying to get some value add to the enterprise support customers. Little pieces here and there. It, is, it does kind of sink of ultra premium a little bit, doesn't it? It does, just a little bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. thought that was an Azure announcement. Mm. Uh, Amazon Fault Injection Simulator now supports task level faults for Amazon Elastic Container Service. So Ryan said he was sick, but it was really that I got into his accounts today and I turned this on for all of his ECS containers, and so I've just been doing faults all day. So it's been a rough day for for Ryan. He was just tired. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> Amazon CloudWatch Container Insights adds support for Helm Chart using AWS Distro for Open Telemetry. Man the helm, Peter. It's getting rocky with these distros for open telemetry. <laughs> and Justin takes the point. What's a pirate's favorite letter? R. <laughs> you no. think, but it's really the C. <laughs> oh, the C. Nice. <laughs> uh, Peter gets the point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> pirate jokes. When is, when is uh, National Speak Like a Pirate Day? <laughs> is there one? <laughs> oh, yes, there is, yeah. There is, oh, yeah. I don't goodness. know what it is, though. That is spectacular. That's the end of the round. I got to go QAnon because I almost said it when I read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. I was, as almost as far as limit test, like, is he going to say QAnon as he reads this out? Because I, I had to double take it when I was putting in the show notes. When I read it the first time, I'm like, what? They have a QAnon yeah. bot? And then, oh, Q&A. The question yeah, is... Talk about naming problems. Like maybe, maybe you should rename this one to something. Maybe Q and A. So that's what you're doing, anyways. Just add two letters, and we won't yeah, be a little, right, a little ampersand, a little ampersand. Yeah, ampersand. Although that would that probably cause all kinds of SQL injection problems for them because they didn't Oof. accept their code properly. We, we should yeah, totally make a Q and bot though that just injects random conspiracy theories into people's chats. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, things are coming up again in the cloud. Uh, April is on the horizon. It's now officially March. Uh, so I don't feel so weird talking about something coming out two months, you know, or a month out anymore. So SQL Server and Azure SQL Conferences, April 5th through the 7th for Azure. And Google Cloud's uh, Data Cloud Summit will be on April 6th. And hot announcement coming in right before showtime tonight. Oracle Open Cloud World or Cloud whatever it is. Open, open Oracle? What was what their conference called? I can't remember. Oracle World open is world. dead. Oracle World. Oracle World is officially dead to be replaced by Oracle Cloud World. Now going to be scheduled in Las Vegas, October 16th through the 20th in person. So Oracle's back with the new Open World product or Cold Loud World or whatever the hell they're calling this thing. I can't even keep it track anymore. Get ready for Cloud World, their new open hmm. community for all things OCI. I'm disappointed they didn't make it a little closer to reInvent so that, you know, we could attend both. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm sorry, they didn't just do it at the same time. Why not? Let's just do both conferences. No one's going to come to the one. We'll just go steal people and say, hey, come over to the Oracle conference for free. We were perfectly. All right. Well, that's the closest stuff that's coming up in the cloud right now. I will save the rest of it for later on in the year. But uh, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Glad to see uh, another conference back on the books post-COVID. So there you go. Have a great week, Jonathan and Peter, and we'll see you next week here in the cloud. Have a good night. Yep. See you later. Thanks. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.